good morning. If you and I don't know one another, my name is Matthew Perez. I am one of the elders on staff here at Life Church, and it's always a privilege to bring the Word of God. This morning, as Brittany said, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20. So if you have a Bible or a handheld device, we encourage you to open up to Exodus 20. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the second book. So you open it up and you got Genesis and Exodus is right after it. And if you are unfamiliar with God's word, when I say Exodus 20, 20 is the chapter, that's the big thick numbers. And we talk about verses, that's the small numbers. So I'll say Exodus 21, we're in Exodus 20, that's the big numbers. One is the verses, the little ones. So if you're kind of new to God's word, we want to help just navigate that as we open it up each Sunday. As Brittany said, we're in the Ten Commandments series. If you weren't here last week and you're wondering what happened to the Gospel of Mark, we've put that on pause for the summer. We're going to rejoin that when the school year starts back up. We're excited to jump back in. We'll jump into that in August, and that will take us through the end of this year. But for the summer, we are going to be in the Ten Commandments, which, which I think is kind of cruel as I think about this, because I thought, if I'm a kid in the room, my summer is going to be clearly marked every Sunday, week two, week three, week four, because week 10 hits right when you go back to school. So I, I'm worried that come late July, some of our kids might be, it's week nine. And parents are like, come on, 10, we're almost there. We're, we're almost there. Um, but we're going to walk through this this summer to see what God has in store. It's a great opportunity for us to grow and be shaped by our understanding of the law and how God has revealed himself to us. It's an opportunity for us to see how God has called his people to be shaped and act as representatives uh, here on earth. And this morning, as we look at the second commandment, it's commonly referred to as you know, have no idols before us. But we're going to see that that is a little bit more in depth than we probably realize in a surface reading. This morning, we're going to look at both the first and second commandment together. Pastor James looked at the first one, but I will look at just the context of where we're at. And so we're in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 6. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we come under your word this morning, I pray that we all, myself included, would sit with hearts and minds open to the receiving of how you have revealed yourself to your people. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here, to bear witness to one another in song and in prayer, and to sit together to allow the words that you have spoken to shape us as a people group and as individuals and families. Lord, I pray this morning not only for the words that I speak, but Lord, I pray for the pastors throughout the county and the men and women who are gathering in chairs and pews throughout the county this morning. 
May your word transform us in our hearts, our hands, and our heads. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. I think one of the dangers that we face in this series is thinking that I'm in Christ and this just doesn't apply to me. Pastor James shared last week in our culture today, when we talk about God, we want to focus on the relationship we have with God through Christ, but not really talk about the, what governs or shapes how that relationship is to be defined. And I want us to notice how this section begins. Look again at verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He begins this section by reminding his people of what he has done. I am your God, the God of salvation. The section begins by God showing how his role has been played out in the redemption of his people. We could summarize verse 2 by simply saying, God is telling us, hey, I saved you. And notice what God does in the section. He says, I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt to this place. And now in light of this redemption, this is how I want my people to act. Now, as we think about our relationship with God, this same pattern applies to us today. Yes, in Christ, God saves us. He brings us out of the marketplace of sin, out of the kingdom of darkness, and transfers us into his kingdom. Ephesians 2 tells us we go from being a child of wrath. Romans tells us we're an enemy of God, and we transform from a child of wrath, an enemy of God, and in Christ, we become an adopted child of God. We have peace with God in Christ. Now the question becomes, how do I respond in light of this new relationship? And what we see here in Exodus is salvation comes and then the law. I point this out because I think a danger we may face in this series or anytime we open scripture is thinking, this is what I must do in order for God to approve of me. And that will set us in a course of feeling we have to perform to be accepted by God. I must act so that he will love me. I am a proud father of three children. Last Saturday, we celebrated our baby girl graduating high school, which means I'm officially old. And I'm now on an endless summer. Because when August hits, it don't matter. You know what my children had to do in order for me to love them? Nothing. They were born. And I fell in love with them instantly, all three of them. My wife likes to joke about the first child that we had. We, had, we, we didn't know what we were having. We, we kept it a secret. And, and out comes this girl, and she's now on the table getting cleaned up. And, and I am, like, running back when I could run. I'm running back and forth like a Labrador between my wife and my daughter, beaming ear to ear. I now have these two women that I'm just in love with. My daughter did nothing to earn that love. She was simply born. 
And then as we loved her, we began to put parameters into her life and the life of her siblings as they were born to help shape them and guide them. Not so that we would love them. We did this because we love them. So we don't want to walk out of this series thinking, I have to do something in order to be loved by God. God has done it in Christ. You're born again in Christ, and he loves you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. If you haven't done this in your life, I pray that today, or through this series, you may come to surrender to Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that through the summer, you'll allow us to speak into your life, to allow God's word to shape you. Not that what we have to say is important, but we allow God's word to speak into your life to shape you and guide you. And our hope is that you'll see the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, and the forgiveness of Christ. Now, here's the other danger that we fall into in this series. We can easily make these 10 words from God a checkbox. This is just what I need to do so people will think I'm good, or God will think I'm good, or I will think I'm good before God. And if we do that, I think we're going to miss the heart of what God is trying to teach us about him and how we respond. And this morning, it's, this is an easy one to do this morning, right? Let's see, I scan around my house. I don't see any idols of any gods that I'm worshiping. I don't see any idols that my family is bowing down to like the Israelites did. So I can think, sweet man, I'm good. This was a waste of a Sunday. Let's move on. If we do this, we miss how God wants to shape us through this commandment. The first commandment can be easily summarized by who or what? Who am I called to worship? Or what am I called to worship? That's the thrust of the first commandment. Who or what do I love, trust, or fear at the heart of my life? If the first commandment can be summarized by who or what, this commandment can be summarized with the word how. Okay, the first commandment calls me to worship, to have my heart, my life, my affection shaped by God and God alone. Okay, how do I do that? In this section, we have a command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's the command. And then we get some commentary. For the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. The commentary is why this matters. I'm going to talk about that first before we look at the command. Because if we get this wrong, God is telling us here that our improper worship, our sinful worship could impact generations to come. But if I get this right, my proper worship can also impact generations to come. At first glance, this seems a bit unfair, this commentary, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It looks like on the surface that God is saying, 
I'm going to punish you for your daddy or your mommy or your granddaddy's sin. Wow. This feels like on the surface that what you're saying, God, is something my great-grandfather maybe did in 1920 I'm paying for. But this isn't how God operates, and this isn't what God's saying. He doesn't punish you for someone else's sin. In fact, he's very clear about that in Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God says, the soul who sins shall die, right? In Ezekiel 18, and you can look at it later, we're going to show a verse in just a minute, but if you haven't looked at Ezekiel 18 in a while, maybe jot that down and go to it later. God says, listen, all souls are mine, yours, your dad's, your mom's. He says, they're mine. And the one that sins, he says in Ezekiel 18, will be punished accordingly. If a man is righteous, and note we are only made righteous through the finisher of Jesus Christ. If a man is righteous, he shall live. If a man is unrighteous, God says in Ezekiel 18, his blood shall be upon himself. In other words, you're punished for your own sin. And he summarizes it in verse 20, which is on the screen behind me. And God says, the soul whose sin shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. As we think of this in light of our passage, we don't want to read Exodus 20 and come away with a false idea that I might be in the midst of some generational curse. That God is unfairly punishing me for the sin of someone else. Ezekiel 18 shows us that that is not how God operates. What God is showing us here is the reality that how we act, how we worship God, profoundly impacts generations to come. And it can do this both negatively and positively. Negatively, my failure to worship God and worship Him properly can shape not only my soul, but the souls of my children and my grandchildren as I lead them in a direction away from God. On the flip side, God's also shown us the positive reality of this command that we're going to look at. He says, look, those who walk in obedience to me, who worship me properly, can shape generations to come as you lead them in a proper understanding of who God is and how we're to walk in obedience to him. And so we need to see the impact that our obedience and our disobedience can have on shaping a gospel or non-gospel legacy, both in our life today and in generations to come. As I was thinking on this commentary over the past few weeks, I I couldn't help but praise God as I looked at my own life in this situation. My mother's parents, my maternal grandmother and grandfather, were first-generation Christians. As young adults, they came to understand who Jesus Christ was as their Lord and Savior. They surrendered their life to Christ. And then they began to shape my mother by the word of God. My mother wasn't a Christian because her parents were. My, my grandparents became Christians and they began to expose my mother to the things of Christ, to the word of God. They allowed her to be shaped by things like Sunday school and Sunday sermons. And so 
My mom sat under the teaching and the authority of Scripture both in her house with her parents as well as at her church, and my mother eventually surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She then met my father, who was also a Christian, and they got married. I'm the third of four boys that they had. We're not Christians because my parents or my grandparents are Christians. My parents took us to church. They opened the word of God. We talked about the things of God. And I came to a point where I understood my sin. And I understood who I was in light of Jesus Christ and how I needed Jesus Christ. And I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Because my parents had put me in an environment where I was allowed to be shaped by the word of God been a pastor for almost 25 years. And hands down, if you tell me the three best days, like what was your best day ever as a pastor? I would say it's a tie. It's a three-way tie. And it's the three days I baptize each of my children. Hands down. Everything else is a distant second. Sorry, guys. Love you. Love my children more. All right? When I sat in the water and pulled my child up from baptism, as they had come forward of their own volition of wanting to tell the church that I am a follower of Christ. I've surrendered my life to Christ. I want to be counted as a follower of Christ. As I sat in the baptism waters with them, I wept as a dad, not just for the decision they made, but we were there because a decision that was made generations earlier by my grandparents who my children never had the pleasure of meeting. I want us to see the commentary in this section and see how our failure or our obedience to God in this area of who we worship and how we worship can have a profound impact on the lives of not only ourselves, but those who come after us. And so as we think about this commandment, I want us to think about how we're shaping our souls and the souls of those who are around us. Let's look at the commandment, the call is to not make for ourselves a carved image or to bow down and serve any likeness of anything in heaven, on earth, or water. We're not to worship any of those things. Again, it would be easy for us to go, Pastor, I got that, I got that down. Like, I walk around my house, there's no goat statues that I'm worshiping. I don't have any Buddha statues that I'm bowing down to. Like, Pastor, I've got this one down cold, man. Let's move on. Yeah, that's a start. It's good. But the thrust of the commandment is about how we're worshiping our God. And to see this in action, to see the first two commandments really in action, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Kings. Just a little bit further on into the Old Testament. It's on page 383 if you have my Bible. Otherwise, I can't help you. Let me, we're about to jump in the middle of a story here. So let me, let me give you the, the abridged version of how we get here. In 2 Kings 9, Israel gets a new king. Israel gets a new king, and his name is Jehu. And I probably butchered it, and I don't care. Jehu becomes the king, and the first thing he does is have the former queen killed. Which sounds harsh, until you hear that the former queen was Queen Jezebel. And if you've never even been in church, you probably know that name, and it's not a good one. We talked about her a little bit a few weeks ago when I was preaching. Jezebel was uh, from Phoenicia. 
And the king before Jehu took her as his wife, and she brought with her worship of foreign gods and goddesses from the Phoenicians, Baal and Asherah. And she not only brought the worship with her, she brought the priests with her. And so the priests, several hundred of them, are eating in the castle, the palace with the king and queen. They're shaping the culture. The king is building uh, statues for Baal and Asherah. The king is building a temple for them. And, and so there's just big Baal and Asherah worship going on in Israel. So Jehu becomes king, and he has Jezebel killed. Step one of his three-step plan to rid Israel of improper worship of commandment one, right? Step two, in chapter 10, Jehu says, hey, man, your last king, he worshiped Baal really well. I want to worship him better. So if you're a priest of Baal, I want you to come to the Baal uh, temple on this day. And if you're a priest of Baal and you're not there, we're going to hunt you down and kill you. Because we're going to have a big celebration that day, and we're going to worship, day, and we're going to worship Baal. So all the priests show up, and Jehu's excited. He says, come on in, guys, let's worship Baal. They all go into the temple. They're offering sacrifices. They get all the Baal priestly garments. They bring them in. Jehu walks out, looks at the guards, and he says, go inside and kill every last one of them. Now, in a few weeks, we have the commandment about not lying. I'll let you square that with James. You talk to him about that, how that all plays out, okay? But for now, that's what he does. Step two, we're getting rid of Baal worship. All the priests are now dead. The temple is destroyed. That brings us to step three. In 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 28. Then Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. This is commandment one. Sweet. But, verse 29. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So he wipes out Baal worship. Praise God. But he leaves up these golden calves in Bethel and Dan. And this action is described as sin. In verses 29 and 31, this action is described as not walking in the law of the Lord with all his heart. And when we read this, we go, oh, that's because he's worshiping something other than God. He's worshiping these calves. And that's not true. <clears throat> the calves of Bethel and Dan were not idols to false gods. They were built in 1 Kings chapter 12 by King Rehoboam. And they were places to worship God improperly. Bethel and Dan were not pagan places of worship. They were places of improper worship of the Lord their God. This is commandment two. They're worshiping God improperly. And this improper worship of God, notice how it's described in verse 29 and in verse 31. This improper worship of God 
is called sin in verse 29. And in verse 31, we're told he's not walking in the law. That's what we're looking at, the law of the Lord. The call in God's law is for his people first to worship God and God alone. That's who we worship. But the second commandment is how. And it's a call to worship God properly. To not make idols, not of other gods, but to not make idols of our own God that we are worshiping instead of the true God. How do we do that today? We don't have golden calves that we're bowing down to. How do we make images of God improperly today that we worship? John Calvin says our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols, and he's correct. And sometimes those idols are something other than God, but sometimes those idols are an improper understanding of God that we choose to worship and lead others in worship. We begin to shape God in the image we want him to be and not the image that he shows us he is in Scripture. We begin to shape him in our hearts and minds in a way that is palatable to us, that is maybe culturally acceptable to our neighbors so that we feel good about ourselves, but we're not worshiping the true God. And in those instances, God calls that sin. Let me show you three ways in our culture, three ways in today's world where we have to check our hearts to make sure we're not worshiping God improperly. First, we do need to be cautious in the things we look at to physically represent God. Notice in this series on the Ten Commandments, how God reveals himself. He reveals himself by speaking. Don't miss that in this series. God speaks and says, this is who I am. And so we do need to be cautious when we use images to depict him physically. Now, this is not a call to throw out your cross necklace or your pictures that might be in your house. But it is a call for us to be careful in how we choose to look at objects that we want to represent God, because if we're not careful, those things become how we think of God, and they may not be how God has revealed himself. Renditions that we look at to say, this is how God is, or this is how Jesus is, this is what he looked like, and we begin to prop that image up in our mind, and we begin to worship it, and we begin to get angry if anybody even says that might not be what God was or is. God has revealed himself in two ways. We'll talk about the second way in a little while. But the first way we see is through the spoken word. And because of this, what should be shaping us are not objects, are not pictures, but what should be shaping us are the words that he spoke in Scripture. And so we have to be careful that we're not propping up objects, physical objects, to pull us in our worship of God away from the word-centered call that we are to be as people. Here's a second way we need to be careful and guard our hearts. And man, I'm going to tell you right now, 
I've been wrestling with this for a couple of weeks now because over 25 years of ministry, I've been guilty of this, right? We can be guilty of violating this commandment, of making an image of God that's improper. When we use words like this, and I, to my shame, have used them, I like to think of God as, and you fill in the blank. When we begin to use those phrases, we need to be very, very, very careful. Because we're on dangerous ground. Look, when, when I stand up here, when Pastor James stands up here, when other people stand up here, we will use illustrations to teach about God, and everyone is going to fall short of who God is. We know that. It just will. But when we like to talk about how we like to think about God, it becomes dangerous ground. I like to think of God as my buddy. Man, he ain't your buddy. He's the sinking creator of the heavens and the earth. One that Isaiah said, I am ruined when he came into contact with. I think to think of God as my, my homeboy. People don't use that word anymore, I know. I just date myself some more. I like to think of like my, my uncle or my granddad. He's not. I like to think of God as a clock or a, a painting. You, you fill in the blank of how you've used that phrase, and I'm sure you have. And when we begin to do that, in our minds we begin to carve and shape an idol of God that isn't quite God. We begin to worship and celebrate our idea of God and not who God has called himself to be, called himself, what God has revealed himself to be. The imagery that should be crafted in our heads is not how we like to think about God, but how he has revealed himself in Scripture. And we need to let that shape our hearts and minds. Here's the third way in which we have to cautiously guard our hearts in the making of an idol of God that is not God. God in his word reveals characteristics of who he is to us in scripture. We refer to those as attributes of God. It's a very fancy term to say these are characteristics of who God is. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's love, he's wrath, he's grace, he's peace, he's judgment. Those are just some of the attributes of God. We need to guard our hearts against picking or overemphasizing the attributes of God that we love while neglecting or not talking about the ones that just make us feel uncomfortable we don't really care about. Big one today, God is love. Man, Yes, he is, and it's so stinking awesome that he is. It is so great that he is. But he's not just love. He's also grace, he's mercy, he's wrath, he's judgment. And his attributes, he's not one one day and a different one the next. He is all of these all the time. Right? Like, I, I come home, and, and some days, fun Matt walks through the door. And my family's excited, but some days, like, angry Matt, it is possible, right? Angry Matt walks through the doors, right? And, and he's not a fun guy to be around, or tired Matt, or 
man, don't be around me when I'm hungry, Matt. I become a jerk. Full disclosure. I become hangry. Like, like that's not, it's the word that describes me to a T, right? So I'm like, I'm one thing one day, one thing the next. God is not one of these attributes one day, one is the next. He is all of these things all of the time. And we are guilty of violating the second commandment when we begin to carve God into our image by overemphasizing or over only speaking about or only resting in or leaning into certain attributes at the expense of others. Oh, I just can't accept that a loving God would send anyone to hell. You're starting to carve an image in your mind that is not God. Oh, man, a loving God wouldn't disapprove of my desire to be happy. He wants me to be happy, even if it means I'm sinning. You're starting to carve an image of God into your mind as you're worshiping that is not God. You have to be careful. You become, uh, when you downplay attributes or neglect attributes, you begin to view his commands as not culturally appropriate today, or you begin to set aside some of his commands so you can be happy The truth is, when I begin to worship God in this manner, I have left the God of Scripture. And I'm now in Bethel and Dan, worshiping a carved image in my mind of what I think God should be. Brothers and sisters, we have to repent of that. We must be people that allow the Word of God to shape our minds as He reveals all of who He is to us. In this series, as Pastor James shared last week, we're looking at three ways that the law, that these commandments should shape us. Three ways that Pastor James talked about that the reformers looked at the law that we want to look at in our series this summer. The law as a map, and the law as a muzzle, and the law as a mirror. Those are going to be three things you're going to hear each week, Right? The law is a map. It means it it guides us to show us who he is and how to live in light of this, right? We understand what a map is. In this commandment, to have no images, including a, a false image of God that we're worshiping. In this commandment, we're called to worship and serve God as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture. We're not left to wonder who he is or what he's like what righteousness looks like, what sin that he abhors looks like. He clearly lays it out in Scripture. And so as we think about the God that we worship, we need to let Scripture be the map that leads and guides how we're to live, worship, and respond to him. The law is also a muzzle points to us to the sin we're devoid and repent of. If you think about a muzzle with a dog, it, it kind of holds that dog at bay. The law is called to hold us at bay and, and, and help us from moving head, headstrong quickly into sin. It's designed to restrain the evil that is in us. The second commandment calls us to learn and understand God so that we do not distort who he is in our minds or in the minds of those we're called to lead and shape. When we begin to craft God in our minds, when we begin to craft God into the image that we want him to be, when we focus only on the attributes we like, we begin to craft an idol of him. And we begin to worship and lead others in worship something that is not the God of Scripture. The law calls us to repent of bowing to not only false idols, but false versions 
of the God of Scripture that we're creating in our minds. And the law is a mirror. We are called to hold it up to allow it to show us where we need to let God continue to shape us for His glory. We hold it up to allow us to see our need for a Savior. I said earlier, God has revealed Himself really in two ways. One is through the spoken word. This is why we as believers should be word-centered. But the other way that God has revealed Himself to us is in Jesus Christ. Right? John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15, it's on the screen behind me, He, He being Christ, He is the image. That means the exact likeness. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul is telling us in Colossians that Christ is the exact likeness of the invisible God. He's, he's made him visible to us. And so as we hold the law up, as we look at the second commandment, the biggest question we need to ask ourselves is this as we walk out this morning. Are you crafting God into your image? Or are you allowing God to craft you into his image? As you're called to grow in Christ-like behavior. We need to repent and stop making an image of God in our mind and see the image that he has provided us in Christ and move in a direction of obedience to him and grow in our call to be more Christ-like as he shapes us for his glory. He is not called to bear our image. We as believers in Christ are called to bear the image of God. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to spend some time in your word. Looking at a command that, Lord, I'll confess it's easy for me to look at and simply check the box and say, I'm not guilty of this. And yet, Lord, as I dive deeper, I am clearly guilty of moments where I have neglected the joy or the lean into of certain characteristics of you. I confess there are moments where I have distorted who you are and the way that I have spoken about you in my teachings. Lord, we confess that we're a people that Lord, can be guilty of crafting the God that we want and not the God that you are in our minds. Lord, may we as a people repent of these moments. Lord, you call us in John to worship you in spirit and in truth, that our worship is not about objects, it's not about what we do, it's about our heart posture. And that heart posture is called to be rooted, Lord, in truth. Not truth as we define it today, not truth that is slippery in the 21st century, but as Francis Schaeffer would say, true truth. The truth that you have revealed in Scripture of who you are and who you call us to be. And may we be a people that continually repents, 
that continually surrenders, that continually strives to walk in obedience to the truth that you have revealed in Scripture of who you are and who you call us to be. Lord, we applaud the kings of Israel who smashed down idols on the hilltops of Israel. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would smash down the idols that we have crafted on the hilltops of our mind, that we go too often to worship a God that we have watered down to make palatable for ourselves and others. Lord, may we repent of this we thank you that your grace covers this as you shape us more into your likeness. We pray all this in your son's glorious name. Amen.